Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, 
If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So for the last three weeks, we've been in Romans chapter 8, which gives us this beautiful picture of how great God's love is for us and about the privilege we have of being his sons and daughters. And it would be very easy to think that Romans 8 is actually the climax of Paul's letter and that chapters 9 through 11 are just sort of some kind of a detour. In fact, it was actually pretty typical of older commentaries on the book of Romans to say that chapters 9 through 11 aren't really that relevant even to the rest of the letter. But Romans 8 has always been everybody's favorite. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote of Romans 8, As Romans is the high peak of the Bible, so chapter 8 is the high peak of Romans. And even when I was a college student, after I had read Romans 8, I decided to start memorizing it because of how beautiful it was. So what is Paul doing moving from there to spending three chapters talking about God's calling and election. Have you ever wondered why it is that God saves some people and not others? And even if to you that's as simple as, well, some people trust in Jesus and others don't. Well, then you're faced with the question, why is it that some people trust in Jesus and others don't? Because if your answer has, sounds anything like, well, some people trust in Jesus because they, then you're on the verge of saying there was something about that person that led them to trust in Christ, and their salvation is not because of God's grace. Maybe you've never even wrestled with the question at all. Maybe you don't really care that much about what God does with anyone else as long as you're in the clear. And whether you thought about it or not, God's calling and election are some of the most difficult things in all of theology for us to grapple with. Our own confession of faith says that this doctrine is to be handled with special prudence and care. And the topic is so difficult that if you go online and look at churches that have their sermons online and are doing sermon series through Romans, you'll actually find that most preachers stop at the end of chapter 8, and don't tread over the next three chapters. I kind of wish we could stop at the end of chapter (laughs) 8. But beginning in chapter 9 and continuing through chapter 11, Paul works through the challenging topic of God's calling and election. Now we have to keep in mind what we've been saying all along about what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. He's not writing a theological encyclopedia. He's writing to the church in Rome, which is made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Paul, who is himself a Jew, an Israelite, is having to rethink everything he's ever understood about the scriptures in light of Jesus' resurrection. He's having to rethink what it means to belong to God's people. He's having to rethink God's promises to Abraham in light of who Jesus is. And then beginning in chapter 9, he's having to rethink what it means to be Israel in the light of his mission 
to the Gentiles. Now, it might be easy for us, who are almost all Gentiles, if not all Gentiles, to think that this discussion is largely irrelevant. But what we're actually going to see is that what Paul says here is just as important for us as it was for the Roman church. So moving from chapter 8 to chapter 9, from the great heights of God's wonderful love for all who are in Christ, a love so great that nothing in creation can separate us from it, Paul turns to the source of his greatest grief that so many of his fellow Israelites have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Paul's forced to wrestle with the question, well, what does that say about God's faithfulness to his own chosen people? And again, it's possible that this may not seem like a very important question to you, but if you have loved ones who don't know Christ, then you can understand Paul's struggle. You can sympathize with what he's wrestling with. So let's walk through the passage together. We're going to spend the first part of the sermon just looking at Paul's line of thought. In verses 1 through 5, Paul expresses his intense heartache. His heart is filled with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Far from being indifferent to those who haven't embraced Jesus, Paul is so brokenhearted that he's even at the point of wishing that somehow, if only he could be cut off from Christ, he'd be happy to do so if that would bring his kinsmen, his fellow Israelites, to Christ. It pains him so much that those he cares about seem to be cut off, that they're missing out on all that God had promised to Israel. Back in chapter 3, Paul had raised the question, what advantage is there to being a Jew in the context of Jews and Gentiles both being sinners? And even though his answer was brief back then, Paul is actually going to lay out the beauty of the story of Israel and the promises that God makes to Israel. It's Israel that God calls his firstborn son. God's covenant promises were made to Israel. They had the privilege of learning from God how to be like him in holiness through the giving of the law. The Psalms are Israel's songbook, and they show us such a great picture of the intimacy and the emotional vulnerability and the glory of Israel's worship. And not least of all, Jesus was born a Jew to Jewish parents. It's because of God's promises to Israel that Jesus enters the world as part of Israel's story. Now, he's going to continue to work through this idea over the next several chapters, but it's important for us at this point to stop and realize what Paul is saying. He's not saying that God has given up on Israel and started something new called the church. He's saying that both Jews and Gentiles together, as Christ's church, share in all that God has promised to his people, Israel. And here's, here's where Paul really starts to begin to wrestle with the implications of the fact that a great majority of his fellow Israelites have not accepted Jesus. Because Paul knows that God's word is faithful, 
He tries to make sense of it by looking back through the Old Testament scriptures. And pretty much from here on out in the rest of the passage, he's looking at place in the Old Testament to say, this is how we understand how it could be that this has happened. The first insight that he has comes from the stories of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Back in Romans 4, Paul had argued that uh, Abraham's children are not necessarily those who are physically descended from Abraham, but those who share his faith. So the natural question is, well, does this make sense in light of what the scriptures say about how God deals with Abraham? And Paul points out here that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac alone was considered a child of the promise, and Ishmael, a physical descendant of Abraham, was excluded. Likewise, Isaac married Rebekah, and they had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was considered a child of the promise. Esau was excluded from God's promises. And just to be clear, it wasn't because Jacob was a good guy and Esau was a bad guy. It was God's decision, even before they were born, to call Jacob and not to call Esau. Paul stresses that God was working out his purposes in their lives. Now put yourself in an Israelite's shoes just for a minute. If Jacob is your ancestor, then you think it's great that by God's sovereign purposes, uh, Jacob's your ancestor and Jacob is the one who is called, and you're pretty happy with God's sovereignty. Um, you're not particularly worried about God's justice, and you don't particularly worry about Esau's fate. You're just happy that Jacob was chosen because you get the benefit of it. You're not worried about justice. You're just happy to receive God's mercy and compassion. So where does Paul go next? He brings up the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let Israel leave Egypt. That was the role that Pharaoh plays in the Exodus story. And again, if you're an Israelite, you have absolutely no problem with this. Pharaoh is the great villain. He's the black hat in the Exodus story. His role in the story is to be punished for opposing God's people. He's supposed to face God's wrath. Now, at this point, a shrewd listener might catch on that God's sovereignty over human history raises questions about the nature of human responsibility. How can God hold people responsible for their actions if his will determines everything that happens? And in response, Paul looks through the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah and looks at how God deals with his people in those settings, and he gives everyone's least favorite answer. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Will the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Something in us rises against that kind of an answer. Our pride rebels against the thought that we are clay pots made to serve the purposes of our maker. Don't we prefer to see ourselves as masters of the universe? Don't we want to believe that we're in control of our own destinies? You're not the boss of me. It's one of our favorite expressions. We don't like being reminded of the infinite distance between creator and creature, between God and all that is not God. So by giving this answer, 
Paul recognized that God is God, whether we like it or not. And at the same time, what he's subtly been doing all along is using the same tactic that Nathan the prophet used to show King David his sin. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, Nathan told this elaborate story to David about a rich man who had many sheep who had stolen the one sheep owned by a very poor man. And when David pronounces his judgment and says, uh, that man should be put to death, David turns and says, you are the man. By talking about God's purposes of election in the context of Isaac versus Ishmael, of Jacob and Esau, and Pharaoh, an Israelite would be celebrating God's sovereignty, his sovereign right to do what he pleases. But then he brings up the potter and the clay, a reference from Jeremiah, where Paul is reminding them, as you heard this morning, that in that context, God's sovereignty is given as the reason of why he has the right to do with Israel whatever he pleases, to punish them for their sins and to refashion them however he sees fit. Well, an Israelite wouldn't be quite so quick to celebrate God's sovereignty now. And so Paul has effectively turned the tables on them. And he goes on to remind Israel how in the prophet Hosea, God punished his people by declaring them not my people. And it was only by God's mercy that those who had become not my people would later become my people. And so Paul reasons that the Gentiles, who were formerly not God's people, had received the exact same mercy that Israel had received in being privileged to become God's people after their prolonged idolatry. And then finally, he appeals to the fact that due to Israel's sin, God pruned the nation like a tree by sending them into exile, saving only a remnant. And it was both a warning and a promise to Israel, reminding them of their need for repentance, but also reminding them that God would be faithful to his promises. The idea of the remnant serves as a warning against presuming upon God's grace without repentance sort of that senioritis that Ryan mentioned earlier. But it also helps to explain how God's word to Israel has not failed. God will bring all of his promises to Israel to complete fulfillment. It's just that Israel's identity needs to be clarified. There are some descended from Jacob who will be pruned so that Gentile branches can be grafted into the tree, as he's going to later put it in chapter 11. And so Paul's overall point is that God's promises to Abraham were always intended to bring blessing to all the nations. Physical descent was never by itself the means of guaranteeing salvation. Our salvation is always dependent on God's sovereign grace. And to presume otherwise is to court disaster and for the creature to dictate terms to the creator. It's tough stuff, isn't it? You can even sense Paul's own tension as he works through the anguish of his heart and trying to make sense of this difficult reality. God is God and we are not. It challenges both our consternation about election 
and our complacency about election. It challenges our consternation because it confronts us with the fact that God is the great potter and we're the clay pots. He is God and we are not, no matter how much we would like to believe otherwise. And it also challenges our complacency because unlike Paul, most of us would never consider giving up our salvation for anyone else. We tend to take God's mercy for granted. And we don't grieve the fact that others face his wrath as long as we get mercy. The doctrine of election gets at the heart of these very difficult issues. God's justice and his mercy. And it's a doctrine that's hard for us to understand and a doctrine that can be hard for us to accept. Before I go any further, let me just say a few things about this very challenging doctrine. One of the reasons that we have a hard time with God's sovereignty and election is that somehow it conjures up fear that God is keeping salvation away from people that desperately want it. That somehow God is playing this game of cosmic, eternal keep away from those who are desperately seeking after him. But Paul has already reminded us in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks after God. We're all rebels at heart that apart from his mercy are running as fast as we can away from God, looking for satisfaction in life and anything else but God. And because of that fact, election can never be used as a means of taking pride in ourselves, as if somehow I was more deserving of God's grace than anyone else. It's not like gym class, where we all know that the order in which people get picked is an expression of the captain's confidence in our own abilities. Paul has stressed that God made choices about Jacob and Esau before either of them was born, before they had done anything good or bad. And as hard as that may be to accept, let's just consider the alternatives for a minute. If God's not sovereign in election, then that raises even bigger theological problems for us. If God is merely responding to human decisions to trust in him or reject him, then he's not actually very sovereign at all. It puts humanity in the driver's seat of the central element of God's story of redemption. And it assumes that sinful, rebellious human beings would on their own freely turn away from their sins to seek after God and worship him with all their hearts. That doesn't sound very much like the humanity that Paul has portrayed in the first three chapters of Romans, and it doesn't really sound very much like my story either. I didn't pursue God. God pursued me. And if my decision to trust Christ was ultimately up to me, then I'd be able to ask myself, why did I trust Christ when someone else didn't? Maybe it's because... I was a little bit smarter than my foolish neighbor. Or I was more righteous than my sinful neighbor. Or I was just more soft-hearted than my stubborn neighbor. Or something to that effect. Because if it's really up to me, then I can take some pride in my decision. I did something that other people didn't. And there's something about me that enabled me to do that. Kristen Wiig used to play a character on Saturday Night Live that even if you've never seen the sketch, you know this kind of person instantly. She was the woman at the party who, whenever anyone 
would say anything, she would immediately want to one-up them. So someone is talking about the fact that they met this famous person, and she'd immediately sidle up and say, yeah, I met a person a little bit more famous than that, so I'm just a little bit better than you. And someone would say, boy, this food's really good. It's, I, I really like it a lot. And she'd sidle up and say, yeah, it's, you know, my, the food that I make is just a little bit better than that, so I guess I'm just a little bit better than you. And everywhere anyone went, she was always just there to say how she was just a little bit better than everyone else. And you all known a person like that, and it is about the most annoying thing possible. Now imagine if God wasn't sovereign over salvation. Anyone who trusted in Christ would have reason to believe that they were just a little bit better than someone else who didn't. But if God is sovereign in election, then I have no boast left other than to boast in Christ and his own mercy, which is Paul's constant refrain. In Les Miserables, after Jean Valjean has stolen silver forks and spoons from the church, the thing that changes his life is what happens when he's caught. The police catch him, take him back to the church, and show the bishop there that this man has taken the silver forks and spoons. And the bishop replies, Ah, here you are, Valjean. I'm glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? And Valjean just can barely comprehend the mercy that he's been shown, which far from deserving, he has proved himself to be utterly unworthy of. And what's true of Valjean is just as true of us. We have done nothing to deserve God's mercy, and we're all utterly unworthy of it. And there's nothing in us that led us to accept Christ other than God's sovereign grace. Now, I recognize that this may not answer every question or objection, and that this is a difficult doctrine. I don't know about you. I don't want anyone to perish. I want God's mercy to extend to all. I don't know how to reconcile this doctrine with God's justice and God's mercy. But it does seem to be the most biblically faithful description of God's character and his goodness and his sovereignty and his plan for salvation. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And in a sense, election is kind of like that. It may not satisfy all of our intellectual or emotional objections, but the alternatives are far worse. We may struggle with its implications, but this is what Scripture teaches, here and in numerous other places. And so we have to try to understand it as best we can and entrust our struggle to our good and merciful God. So where do we go from here? I'd like to mention three things this passage means for us today. First, you have to ask yourself, do I grieve for those who do not know Christ? Paul certainly did. His heart was broken for the sake of those who didn't know the blessings that God offered in Christ. 
And if it doesn't cause you grief to know that there are those who might perish, then you need to ask yourself why you're so cold-hearted. Maybe you just choose not to think about it. Maybe it never crosses your mind. Or maybe you just don't care that much. Paul was so broken by it that he was willing to give up his own salvation, if he could, to see others come to faith. If that's not where your heart is today, then mourn the fact that your love isn't yet like Jesus' love. And ask him for the grace to become more like him. Like Jesus, Paul was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of the lost. Are you willing to sacrifice your comfort, any of your time, to get to know your neighbors or your coworkers who don't know Christ, to actually invest in building relationships with them, to show them the love of Christ, to help them when they need help, to show them compassion when they're struggling? To start, it may be as simple as just ringing the doorbell and introducing yourself. Or if you know them, just to ask them how they're doing. Take an interest in their lives. Remind yourself of God's mercy to you and show that mercy to them. Secondly, if you're heartbroken by the thought of others perishing and dislike the idea of God's sovereign election, then this passage also has something to say. How do we wrestle with God's sovereign will? In some ways, we all desperately want him to be sovereign. We're comforted by the fact that by his sovereign power, we came to faith in Christ, and that even now, even now, that God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But that same sovereign will poses a challenge for us when we think about those who do not yet know him. So what are we going to do with this angst that this causes us? Paul searched the scriptures for his answer. Will we tell God what he must do? At what point are we willing to trust in his revealed character with the things that are hard for us to make sense of? God is both merciful and just, and in some way, according to James, his mercy triumphs over judgment. So plead for his mercy for yourselves and for all whom he has made. When God revealed to Abraham his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleaded with him, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham humbly pleaded with God who heard him. And in the end, Abraham entrusted the matter to God. And then third, if you're actually pretty comfortable with the doctrine of election, then you might need to guard your own heart from presumption. God's sovereign grace should make us all deeply humble, recognizing that we have done nothing to deserve his mercy and that we have done everything to show that we are not worthy of it. We should long for his mercy to come to all. The story of Israel is a story of a people who presumed upon God's mercy as they turned to worship idols. They ignored their calling to be whom God had called them to be and pursued idolatry instead. And so God whittled them down to a remnant. And Paul's teaching in this passage should serve as a warning to us that presuming upon God's mercy 
rather than following Jesus with our whole hearts is a dangerous path to walk. The doctrine of election is not a lazy boy designed to let you kick back and put your feet up. It's an expression of God's mercy that should motivate you to want to live in a manner worthy of your calling, as Paul will put it in his letter to the Philippians. Because God is not the one who failed to keep his promises. His people failed to trust him. And so God took this great tree and pruned it down to a remnant. And as one theologian puts it, God whittled the tree down and down and down until there was only one true Israelite left, Jesus himself. Jesus is the true Israelite. In a sense, Jesus and his life are the whole story of Israel, the whole story of all of Adam's race. But where we stumbled and fell, Jesus remained faithful. When, we, when he was tempted, Jesus remained faithful to God where we chose sin. Where we chose to put ourselves ahead of others, Jesus laid down his life to rescue his enemies from sin and death. We struggle to obey in the smallest things of life. But Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even a humiliating death by public torture and execution. You know, Jesus didn't volunteer for the mission. Jesus was called and elected by God to be the Messiah, to rescue lost sinners from sin and death. And God rewarded Jesus' faithfulness by exalting him to the highest place and giving him the name above every name. What an extravagant mercy on God's part that he should give any of us, whether Jew or Gentile, a share in Christ's reward. But that's the great wonder of his sovereign grace. It should humble us and encourage us to cling to God's mercy, to be willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps no matter how hard it is, that we might learn to be more like him. And it should encourage us, like Paul, to plead for God's mercy on all and to grieve for those who remain under his wrath and to be willing to sacrifice for their sakes and in the end to entrust those things that are beyond, under our, beyond our understanding to a good and merciful God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we almost don't even know what to say. Uh, we come from so many different places and we recognize that we struggle with this doctrine either because we take it lightly or because we don't want to believe it or we um, our hearts break for those whom we love who have not come to faith. And so, Father, this morning we um, throw ourselves and all whom you've made on your mercy. Be merciful. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have demonstrated such profound mercy to us. We thank you that even though we were all faithless, that because of Jesus' faithfulness, we have received a share in your mercy. We praise you for your character, that you would be such a merciful God. 
And we pray that we would never take that mercy for granted, but that we would long to live in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would long to follow Jesus, and that we would, um, just like Valjean, recognize that we have been bought with a price and that we would want to live up to it. Father, we pray that you would give us tender hearts like yours, that you would make us a merciful people. Uh, And we pray that as we struggle with things that are difficult for us to understand, that uh, you would speak to us, that you would um, guide and direct us, that you would grant us wisdom. And we pray that when we come to the end of all of our wisdom, that you would give us the grace to trust you. For will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We pray that you will, and we know that you will. And so we can pray all these things with confidence, trusting in you, in Jesus' name. Amen.